This episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you once again by our friends at Shudder, the premium video streaming horror service for everybody who wants to get spooky in October or make every month October, make every month Halloween. What you can do on Shudder is you can stream the greatest thrillers, horror films, suspense films, everything you want on all of your favorite devices, and you can try it for free for 14 days. Go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED. And now, let's get spooky. It's 2018, and Laurie Strode is holding a shotgun. She's at home. Michael Myers is outside. Lori is 40 years older. Her hair is gray, but she looks strong. Scared, but ready. She takes a step closer to the door. She locks it, puts an iron bar across it, too. Her daughter comes down the stairs. Michael's here. Get downstairs. Go, baby, go! Lori leans against the door. Her finger is on the trigger, and she is prepared to kill. She's got this. For a long, quiet second, she's in control. And then... Michael's heavy, scarred hands break through the glass. He's come home. This is who you meet. Someone who has spent her entire adult life preparing for this meeting with Michael Myers. Forty years has gone by, and she has not had one day where she has not said, Michael Myers is coming back. Of course Michael Myers was coming back. You heard those fans in our last episode. And if you've made it to this, our final episode of Halloween Unmasked, and by the way, thank you for creeping around with us, I bet odds are pretty good you might have already seen the scene we just used to open this show, as David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, and Jason Blum's new Halloween is out in theaters now, and it has actually already set several box office records. It's the biggest Halloween sequel opening weekend ever, the biggest opening weekend for a slasher movie, period, and the biggest opening weekend for a movie starring an actress over 55. This episode is about how the film came together and what scares us and thrills us about the story today. And if you haven't seen the new Halloween yet, fair warning, we will be talking to the filmmakers and Jamie Lee Curtis and new heroine Andy Matichek about things that might be spoilers. This is your warning, and it's a little nicer than how Dr. Loomis would do it. Hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. So yes, of course Michael Myers was coming back. But it was not a sure bet that Jamie Lee Curtis was coming back, or John Carpenter. Jason Blum, the founder of Blumhouse Productions, the man who brought you Get Out and The Purge and Insidious, he swore to himself that he would not make his own Halloween movie unless Jamie and John agreed to join up. Not just give their blessing, to executive produce, to give their creativity and their energy and their brains. But when Jason insisted that they were musts, especially to people who knew John, well... And they said... Well, then it's probably not going to work out. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we've approached John and he's not interested in doing it. So I said, I said, I want to sit with before I let go of Halloween, I want to sit down with John and um, talk to him, you know, talk to him about it. And they kind of said, good luck, you know. Jason's meeting with John Carpenter started at 3 p.m. He remembers the time. He remembers everything. So I sit down and he's gruff and he's like, so what's in your mind? And I kind of made my pitch about how, you know, the company works, you know, reminding him and Halloween's going to be new. And he's like, there's been 10 Halloweens. They've all sucked. Why on earth am I going to? I'm not. No. And then I tried to this. I said, I said, you know, we're O'Tour. We're going to be different than the other 10. And da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, it sounds stupid. No. I can picture this perfectly. 
When I, your Halloween Unmasked host Amy Nicholson, first met John, I said how I'd just met Jamie Lee a few days before, and wow, was she lovely and charming, and he said, well, I'm not. He's completely scrappy. He's completely fighting. I mean, he's as scrappy now as he was, you know, in the 70s. Which means after getting to know John yourselves in the show, you can picture this scene perfectly, too. Back to Jason's make-or-break pitch. And he said, well, am I going to have final cut? And I said, no. And he said, then there's no point. I have no control. He said, am I going to have final say over this? Am I going to have final say over that? And I said, I said, no, you're not, you're not going to. He said, then, then this is a waste of time. Why would I, well, how am I going to make this better? John had convinced Erwin Yoblins to give him final cut on his first Halloween back when he was a nobody. And four days later, here he is getting his ring kissed and being told it's not going to happen. But you are John Carpenter. And you wrote and directed the most iconic horror movie of all time. You have my word that if you are not happy with the director that we choose or the writer that we choose or an actor that we cast or a script or a story moment in the script, we're not going to do it. And by the way, it's very easy for you to enforce that. If you hate the director we choose, if you go out and say, these, these guys don't know what the hell they're doing after you're already producing the movie, that gives an enormous amount of power. True. John Carpenter holds a direct microphone to Halloween fans. And if he said that this new movie sucked, his words would echo across the Internet. So time for Jason to make his closing argument. So then I said this. I said, well, John, let me let me put it to you this way. I said, I really want to make this movie. And I'm not going to make the movie unless you agree to do it with us. But I said, no matter what you and I decide, the movie is going to get made, either without us or with us. So why wouldn't you take a shot on instead of complaining about how all the bad movies are, why don't you join the party and let's take a shot at actually making a good one? And he kind of raised one eyebrow. He didn't say yes or he didn't say no. But of everything I said, that's what landed. Meeting over. Jason walked outside and he looked at his watch. I will never forget. It was 316. It was 16 minutes. But it was a crucial crucial 16 minutes. But Jason's 16-minute pitch, you know, the time it makes to, like, make a frozen pizza? It got the film going. So then, Jason wanted to get director David Gordon Green on board. He'd had David on his try-to-hire list for 18 years, ever since he saw David's first film, this no-budget indie called George Washington that's about a small-town boy who accidentally kills someone. I've been trying to get David to work on a movie with us for a long time. I loved... I love his work. I love George Washington. And I loved, I've loved most of the movies he's made since then. I've really admired him. I always thought he would make a great horror movie for whatever reason. And because he's a great director. So for years, Jason would send David emails about movie projects. And David would write back, not for me. Until Jason sent David, who you know is a huge Halloween fan, a one-word email. I got an email from Jason Blum asking me if I was interested in this, this, the concept of reimagining this franchise. And I'd said, Halloween, question mark? And he said, let's talk, or like, I love it, or I'm in, or something like, great. And uh, I had no idea what Halloween was going to be. David elbowed his college buddy, Danny McBride, Mr. Kenny Powers himself from Eastbound and Down, to co-write the script. And Danny was like, hell yes. And then they started to watch the sequels and think about runes and cults and daughters and so many quasi-supernatural Michael Myers' deaths where he just wouldn't die. And then they were like, hell no. David and I quickly were like, man, this is like impossible. Like there's no way to sort of like, you know, have a movie that's going to have the aesthetic that we want, which is just something that's really like stripped down and, and, and minimal. Uh, we're never going to have that if we have to spend like the first hour of the movie explaining how it connects to everything else. I was interested myself in exploring the genetics of that first film. 
as opposed to just put a guy in the mask and come up with his next adventures. I'm picturing Danny and David trying to make all of these sequels fit together, and I'm thinking of those scenes of crazy people staring at a bulletin board full of, like, note cards and red string, and I totally get why they just decided to erase every single movie from 2 to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. You know, Nolan's Batman doesn't replace Tim Burton's Batman, you know? It's just a different interpretation of a character that people like. If something to last and want it to go on for a long time, I think reinvention is important, and I think with that, it's not throwing out the old ones. No one's going to come and... You know, take your Halloween 4 and 5 Blu-rays from you. You'll still have those. Well, we toyed with the idea of, of saving Halloween 2 for a while because that was one that we all knew really well and think is, is a really fun movie. But there was one key element about it that made was, – was, was we kind of kept facing as making our movie less scary, and that's that Michael is after his sister and that there was some sort of genetic bond to, from him to her, which then made him not want to kill me. And then if, if I'm not if I'm not worried about him getting me and I just got to look out for his relatives, I'm not that scared. I had read old interviews with Carpenter where he like he had expressed that maybe he didn't like love that plot twist. And uh, and it was interesting because when I heard that, I was like, you know what? I didn't think about that. But like that story element ended up like hijacking the rest of the series. Like everything became about his bloodline and his connection to his bloodline. And when you look at the first one, it's like that's not even an element in the original, you know. And so it kind of seemed odd that all these other films like that's at, at the core of what all these other films were about. And they made sure the change was clear in their film. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. David and Danny's Halloween story is simple. Forty years ago, Michael Myers attacked Laurie Strode. He fell out of a window, he got arrested, and he has been locked up since 1978. Until now. In their Halloween, Michael, a Michael almost old enough for a senior citizen's discount. He can still kick your ass. Okay, fine. He smashes his way to freedom, and then he slaughters his way through Haddonfield again. He's basically been this dormant animal penned up for 40 years, and the fury and the rage and the, and the psychotic actions are all just been bumbling under the surface waiting to explode. My opinion is what works so effectively about the first one is that there is a, is a bad guy with a knife, and he's in your house, and you could be next. And that's horrifying no matter what the cultural or political climate of the universe is, that's, that's scary shit. Yeah, and it start, the story then started to take on more legs for us. Like, the characters started to be characters that we could get our heads around because they weren't involved in this real intricate mythology. They were, they were just involved in this one scary night on Halloween. Jason heard their pitch to kill all of the sequels. It erased so much history, so many labors of love, so many months, or years really, of creative passion from Rob Zombie and the Akkads and from the Weinsteins at Miramax. It was bold. In my opinion, that was a brilliant idea. I know that you know Rob Zombie, so did you break it to him yourself? I didn't break it to Rob Zombie. I clearly should have, now that you say it that way. Clearly I should have. I did break it to Bob Weinstein. He, he wrote back, he, 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 he wasn't thrilled, but I think he appreciated the email. I am speaking 100% only for myself here, but anything that makes Bob Weinstein unhappy is fine by me. And now, everybody shifted their attention to writing something worthy of the scream queen Jamie Lee Curtis. They asked themselves who Laurie Strode would be today, who this unformed teen girl would become after fighting for her life, after seeing her friends lose their lives. They watched and they rewatched the first movie looking for clues, and they kept coming back to one line. Yeah, and in a very commanding voice, she says to Tommy Doyle in the original film, says, do as I say. We talked about that line and what that meant to her, and then we incorporated that into our script and into our 
our evolution of her, of having that evolution of the innocent schoolgirl getting good grades, nervous about boys and the dance and all the stuff that we kind of touch on, or they touched on in the original film. And then we go back in with who I believe was invented that night in 1978, confronting Michael Myers for the first time is do as I say. And so now that's where that's who she's become is the authority. What they saw in that line, do as I say, is that when Laurie Strode gets scared, she gets aggressive. So that is the Laurie Strode they mapped from 1978 to 2018, a Laurie who does more than fight back. When she hears that Michael Myers has returned to Haddonfield, she stalks him. To reach Jamie Lee Curtis, David asked Jake Gyllenhaal to put in a good word for him. Yes, that Jake Gyllenhaal, he's her godson, it is a very small world. And when Jamie Lee said she'd hear their idea for who Laurie Strode would be if she agreed to bring her back to life, she got it right away. It's a movie about trauma. And what Me Too is about is trauma. Repressed, years-long trauma. And finally saying no more. Um, she, she, Laurie Strode could be a Me Too voice for people who've had violence perpetrated on them, um, physical and um, violent attack, survivors of that. And, you know, Laurie Strode's violence is fake. It's not real. But in a movie, to see a character come around 40 years later and say, no more, hashtag me too, is powerful. Once she saw, again, kind of getting over the suspiciousness of what another movie entitled Halloween could be, which in a world of sequels and reboots and remakes, we, we all are suspicious of the, of the projects that we f- feel are beloved to us. Um, I think she saw the excitement, the energy, and the honor that we were trying to project and, and got on board and you know quickly became in many ways, the pilot of the ship. In her head, she imagines that, like, Lori went back to school on November 1st, you know, that she didn't receive a lot of, like, help because in the time period, that's not how people dealt with with trauma, you know? And so she was left to sort of work all these issues out herself. All these relationships have crumbled around her, and the only thing that stayed constant is this, like, you know, this feeling of dread that it's going to happen to her again. I mean, you know, we, we tried to create a character that was fearless, um, uh, in, in facing her fears, you know, so that was it was not going to be a heavily made up role. We got her uh, a, a hairstyle that was very reminiscent of her original. It's like she hadn't evolved too f- too far in her own fashion since even some of the color palette of her wardrobe. What have the last forty years been like for Lori? Jamie Lee talked it out with David and Danny. They decided that she'd had a couple husbands and a daughter named Karen, played by Judy Greer. Well, again, it's not mentioned in the movie. Um, in, in my mind and in the story that Jamie and I kind of concocted for her character, she was married twice, neither of which were her father and neither of which lasted long. And, um, yeah, she, that Judy was conceived in a, in a bathroom at a bar somewhere one night. That's very different than the Lori we knew. Yeah. She had a tough few years. And, and you know, and looking at the casting, too, it, that had to happen pretty quickly after 1978 for our math to work. After being born to a young mother who'd had her life derailed by violence, Karen had a really rough childhood. Can you imagine being a first grade teacher and having Lori Strode walk in and go, hi, this is my daughter. So what's your exit strategy? What are they going to do? 
when Michael Myers comes for Karen. And the teacher's like, I'm so sorry. Can you give us a minute? And, you know, the police had to be called. Sadly, today, we have active shooter policies in kindergarten. And students have to learn the word active shooter. And they, there are policies and preparations in place for all those eventualities. And this is a woman who couldn't get anybody to listen to her. She was probably dragging the police department 20 times. Oh, here comes Lori. Hi, Lori. What are you doing? And now that Karen has grown up, one of my favorite little visual jokes in the new movie is that Karen is so anti-all things Halloween that on the spookiest night of the year, she's chosen to wear a Christmas sweater. That was her idea of, like, her rebellion. Like, her mother is so affected by Halloween that she's not even going to recognize it. In fact, she's going to disrespect Halloween by wearing a Christmas sweater. It's never commented on, which... I was watching it the other day thinking maybe we should have just acknowledged that <laughs> that we're not idiots. But I don't know. Hopefully pick, people pick up on the, the charms of that character choice. Karen is now a mother herself, and she's raised her own daughter, Allison, to think that Grandma Laurie is paranoid. I mean, of course they would. Michael Myers has been locked up for Karen's whole life. Laurie is the monster who made her grow up learning to load rifles. Laurie is the one who right here has barged into her house waving a pistol. You need help, and you are not welcome in this house until you get it. I have tried to protect you and prepare you. Now we have to hunt him down. Yeah, and I am trying to prepare dinner for my family. Karen has fought hard to be happy. It's taken real work, and she has earned the right to build a good life with her husband and daughter. The world is not a dark and evil place. It is full of love and understanding, and I'm not letting your psychotic rants confuse me or convince me otherwise. Do you have a gun? No, you need to go. Get out! And also, Karen knows that Lori's an alcoholic who stashes tiny bottles of vodka in the car. There's this heartbreaking scene where Lori sees Michael for the first time while he's still in captivity. She's holding a gun, and we are not sure what she's planning to do with it, but she decides instead to go to her family. She chooses her family over violence. But when she bursts into their dinner, she's so rattled and vulnerable that she chugs a glass of wine. From that moment on, Karen won't listen to anything she has to say. It's an awful scene because they're both upset and they are both correct. Karen isn't just some naive daughter. Her mom has ruined her life. Being raised in constant fear has ruined her life. But Lori also just wants to keep her daughter safe. She has literally banged around in the universe, preparing every single day of her life for this guy to come back. He's going to come back to Haddonfield, and he was going to come after her. And her obsession and her perseverating over and over, and her commitment to that belief cost her two marriages. It actually cost her her child. The state came and took her child from her because she was an unsafe mother, because how can you raise a child when you're a paranoid? Of course, Lori's not completely paranoid. We know that, those of us in the theater, even though no one else does. Not even the characters who consider themselves journalists, two podcasters named Aaron and Dana, who walk around the sanitarium and Haddonfield with microphones. They're dredging up gory details about Michael Myers' murders for their investigative podcast. We like to re-examine incidents with an unbiased lens. I believe there's a lot to learn from the horrors you experienced. Here, they narrate the first Halloween's opening scene, kind of like I did, the death of Michael's real sister, Judith Myers. As she sat combing her hair, Unaware, her six-year-old brother crept in quietly with a kitchen knife. He then proceeded to slice the base of her skull, scraping her spinal cord. That is more autopsy detail than I had. 
Also, let me just say that my producers and I were pretty deep into making this podcast when we got to watch the new film and we discovered that podcasters are the not so good guys. Here in the new Halloween, podcasters are the people stirring up trouble. They're the people waving Michael's mask around, trying to find the human side of him and the monstrous side of Laurie Strode. Michael Myers is a human being who killed his sister when he was six years old. Podcasters are the people barging onto Lori's property, giving her their pitch, giving her a stack of bribe money, and nagging her about her miserable last 40 years. Her bad marriages, her frayed bond with her daughter and granddaughter. Podcasters are the people who try to guilt her into seeing Michael, to forgiving Michael for her benefit, but really kind of their own so they can have a happy ending where things are magically healed. But Lori is not having it. Michael Myers murdered five people. And he's a human being, we need to understand. I'm twice divorced, and I have a basket case. They're sympathizing more with Michael than with her, and then their judgment of her, judgment of, of her is what gets under her skin, is that she can't accept the fact that, you know, there's a murder on one end that she witnessed, and then they're criticizing her for, for um, you know, failed relationships. Lori orders them to leave. And then she says this. Time's up. This scene is about how we're conditioned to poke holes in a woman's story, even when she's the victim. How making things right is on her, and when is she going to do the work of healing him, bringing him back into society's fold? It's this unconscious knee-jerk reaction. Oh, maybe the guy had a reason. Maybe we should hear him out, even when Michael has done nothing to deserve it. Why do we as a culture do that? Sometimes I wonder if the movies are partially to blame. You know, most of us have a lifetime of growing up with movie heroes and anti-heroes who are mostly men. As an audience, we're just more used to putting ourselves in male shoes. We're used to searching for moments of empathy or understanding or at least curiosity, even if the character is a monster. Even if they're Frankenstein or Hannibal Lecter or Breaking Bad's Walter White or, yeah, Michael Myers. If I'm, if I'm Aaron and Dana on their journey to study a serial killer, I don't want to just find the monster. I want to find what triggered the monster, what created the monster, where he comes from, and, and was that a, uh, was he conditioned from his upbringing, from his family? Um, surely he couldn't just be born evil. Oh God, that reminds me a little bit of what I did in episode three of the show when Dr. Toby and I theorized about Michael's first off-screen traumas. I'm starting to feel a little bit guilty, and you know what, hold on. My producer, Zach Mack, wants to interrupt and say a few things about the portrayal of podcasters in this movie. So as a moviegoer, I think Halloween is great. But as a podcast producer, I am offended by their portrayal of podcasters. Go on. Okay, so as journalists, they, they try to strong arm Michael Myers, who, a nonverbal mass murderer in a psych ward, to talk by provoking him. It's a bad idea. Uh, number two, their suggestion is to take a clearly traumatized and paranoid Laurie Strode and have her confront Michael Myers and essentially re-traumatize her for the sake of their podcast. They try to bribe Laurie Strode and essentially pay her $3,000 for three minutes of her time. These are public radio producers walking around with satellite radio money. <laughs> okay, that is inside podcaster humor. Go on. And I won't go into detail, but they're only using some of the equipment needed to record a podcast. They're, they're also awkwardly reading their scripts in cars and windy cemeteries. Um, Amy, where are we reading your script right now? A quiet studio. Yeah, because that's where you record your narration. I mean, Zach, I did try to convince you to let me record a little thing while walking through crunchy leaves. What did you say? That's a bad idea. <laughs> okay, I'm feeling a little bit better. Thank you, Zach. So let me even the score with Danny. Can I give you a little bit of shit that your movie has made 
podcasters the enemy? <laughs> no, we just we're, we were we we had to uh, like zero in on like who are the most relative journalists out there right now, and we thought podcasters. That's who has to kind of crack the case of Michael Myers. That's very kind, and also you've now made me a target. <laughs> I'm sorry. You'll know what to do. Don't just hide in a bathroom stall. Get out of there. I will take that advice. So let's take a quick break and return with the last half of our last show of Unmasked. Once again, Unmasked would like to say thank you to our sponsor, Shudder, the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. You know, every episode I like to give a special shout-out to a special horror selection of curated hits. Here are a couple that I think are awesome this week. What we have tried to do on this podcast is talk about the history of horror, to really look at horror in the broad range of what it means in the universe. And Shudder has an awesome selection up right now called Foundations of Horror, where you can watch everything. You can watch early black and white horror films. You can watch two versions of Nosferatu. Yes, the one with Klaus Kinski is also up there. You can watch Wicker Man. You can watch a documentary on the Day of the Dead, Document of the Dead. And then you can just actually watch Night of the Living Dead, another signature awesome horror film that really changed things going forward. You know Lon Chaney as the hunchback of Notre Dame and as the Phantom of the Opera. What about Lon Chaney in The Penalty? This is a movie from 1920 about a criminal who gets his legs amputated by this doctor and like plots revenge. It is so sinister, and you would not believe that a film like this is almost 100 years old. And in this episode, we talk for a millisecond about apocalyptic horror films. Well, they have a whole section on that, too. It's called The End is Nigh. So get your Shudder on. Try it for free right now, 14 days. Go to Shudder.com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED. Get spooky. Watch some stuff you've never seen. Have a blast. And we are also brought to you by Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, which brings together the stories and visions of the world's most notorious creators of horror. Select nights September 14th through November 3rd in Universal Studios, Florida. From cinematic greats and crazed current cult favorites to the park's original abominations. Every year, the legend grows and the experience reaches beyond your wildest nightmares. Enter terrifying haunted houses inspired by the biggest names in horror. You're never quite sure if your spine is tingling with dread or sheer excitement. Surrounded in shadow by screams and mad laughter, face nightmarish creatures on streets twisted into sinister scare zones. As the sun sets on days filled with thrills, the night awakens with a frightening chill. Lose yourself in outrageous live shows filled with diabolically entertaining surprises. And then escape to some of Universal Studios' most exhilarating attractions where heart-pounding takes on a different meaning until the horror calls you back. Learn more at HalloweenHorrorNights.com. And now, back to the show. We're back, and the last thing we heard was Danny McBride advising me to run, run, run far away from the podcast host hating Michael Myers. Maybe running would help, but probably not. There are a lot of brutal deaths in the new film, although the gore slowly builds over the runtime, almost like the new Halloween itself is tracing how slashers got bloodier. At the start of the movie, deaths take place off-screen, or at least they aren't very graphic, just say like the sound of a snapping neck. Then the deaths get a little more blood, a knife through a jaw, a knife through a neck, and then they get bigger and bigger up until a death at the end which Danny wrote that he found absolutely disgusting and delightful. I will be nice and redact the character's name. There was like one stage direction that like never left the script and it was, uh, I think it said something like, you know, uh, Michael brings his boot down onto his face and then it was just in all caps, his brains shit out. And that uh, stayed in the script from the first draft to the last. And so every time I see that, I just think about that's what it looks like when brains shit out. That's the grossest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it is gross. <laughs> the death toll in the new Halloween is at least quadruple the body count in the original. There's even a joke about it in the script when one of Laurie Strode's granddaughter's friends says that, quote, a couple of people getting killed with a knife is not that big of a deal by modern standards. 
At first, I figured Modern Standards was just an elbow at the bigger body count of sequels and copycats. I didn't suspect that David was making a deeper point, but then I asked him about it. Yeah, you know, you do put it in perspective in, in a, a horrific suburban assault of teenagers in a, in a suburban neighborhood uh, in 1970 is very different than in a post-Columbine world of, you know, anybody can push a button at this point and, you know, uh, international and planetary destruction is, is you know, uh, feels like it's within within our reality of our lifetime in, in, some, in some, some ways. Yeah, planetary destruction is on my mind too, and we've got some good horror movies about that. But I wasn't expecting David to say Columbine, even though I remember that shift. I remember when going to school really suddenly could be dangerous. When parents like Laurie Strode asking about exit strategies, they sounded less crazy. And I definitely wasn't expecting David to tell me that he learned to be scared in safe places as a kid before the rest of us. David graduated from Richardson High School in the early 90s. It's a good public high school on the north side of Dallas, Texas. And when he was a sophomore, a kid in his grade named Jeremy Wade Dale walked in late to English class. The teacher told him to go get a tardy slip. Jeremy left, and he came back with a gun. Miss, I got what I really went for, he said. Then he killed himself. Pearl Jam wrote a song called Jeremy about a kid that shot himself in my high school uh, when I was in the 10th grade. And those, those type of events started to trigger things in me and my youth that were really powerful and effective and became culturally recognized events. But there's something about your home and the intimate environment of where you live and the safety of your neighborhood and community that that's a reality that I feel that can be violated. And any number of headlines through my youth of missing children or events. That Pearl Jam video was a huge deal. Maybe you've seen it. There's this boy who can't express himself. His parents ignore him. His classmates are laughing at him. He's hurt and he is angry and he dies at the end of the video. And you really do have that panic of wanting to reach out and listen to him to try to help him before he does something that he can't take back. That was your high school? Yeah, Richardson High School, Dallas, or Richardson, Texas. And I didn't know that. I just, I just, I knew the Mark Pellington video. I didn't know that was yeah. based on. It, 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 it was, yeah, that was a very interesting time. But, but when you're realizing things like not only mortality, but these, these headline issues that are, are, are landing in your life that are, you know, very powerful and upsetting and disturbing, horrific events. And so now we live in a world that has all that, uh, you know, the, the epic scope and scale of these international horrific concepts, but still the intimacy of who you know or down the street or missing persons and things like that. The simplicity is still what keeps me up at night. John Carpenter was shaped by the civil rights struggle. 30 years later, David Gordon Green was shaped by the start of the school shooting era, when America started to realize something wasn't right about the mental health of some young boys, and how we were encouraging them to express our emotions or not express them, how violence would make them legendary. Neither of these cultural fights has gone away, and you probably don't need me to mention the names of the boys who have taken up arms on the wrong side of both at once. As a country, we're having a needed look at how we tell young boys to not cry, how we basically encourage them to bottle up everything and be as stoic as Michael Myers. And thinking of that, you notice that the young guys in David's New Halloween are all pretty interesting and expressive. They don't just fit this cool dude stereotype like the boys on the first Halloween who basically just bone cute girls and drink beer. In the new movie, David expands on the idea of what being young and male can also mean today. There's this gravel-voiced little boy on a hunting trip who also sticks up for his love of dancing. There's this sarcastic and super funny little kid who teases his babysitter but also isn't too self-conscious to admit when he's scared. 
Allison's boyfriend. And by the way, did you catch who his dad is? Here's a hint. He did get out of sixth grade. Anyway, Allison's boyfriend is down with wearing high heels to a school dance. Although, yeah, he does have to take them off when he has to run. There's another kid who gets dating and consent wrong, and Allison in the movie totally call him on it, but you also sense that he's capable of learning to do better. I mean, that is, if he gets to live long enough. And instead of the emphasis on female virginity, that shifted to this goofy and romantic and innocent character played by this actor Miles Robbins, this new face that I really like, by the way, who's dating Allison's best friend, which makes him the Bob, but in a totally different way. In our subtext, he was a virgin, she was not. And tonight was the night that she was going to take his virginity. And so he has tattooed the date of his virginity loss on his shoulder. And so tonight is the night that, you know, he says the line in the movie, tonight's the night that we'll remember for the rest of our lives. And then, ta-da. It feels like David and Danny are making a point. Let all the humans, male and female, be humans, not just cliches or quote-unquote strong female characters. And also, if there's one thing that sticks out about this Haddonfield, especially after watching Rob Zombie's Haddonfield, it's that the people of this town are kind to each other. And they're funny while being kind, even the small characters, like the cop who makes his cop partner a peanut butter banh mi sandwich. And yeah, lots of these characters are created to die, but while they're alive, they're real people. In a polarizing time, this Haddonfield feels kind of aspirational, that maybe our all-American towns can get along if we just take care of each other. I think good horror is, you know, I think it can wake people up to things that are around them, things that are unjust and unfair around them, and and it can do it by not being like heavy-handed or preachy. And I think that that in some ways that's way more effective to a way to get through to people. I think that's true. Good horror can be like a vitamin spun into cotton candy, an important idea that gets transformed into something that the audience will happily gobble up. If you take a big moral lesson and present it straightforwardly, say in a drama or a documentary. That can be a harder sell than promising people fun. Horror gives filmmakers the freedom to take the scary, slippery, real-world things that keep us up at night and make them tangible, defeatable. John Carpenter did this really well. Like, here, here's his theocratic dictator president that he wrote in Escape from L.A., who seems excited that an environmental apocalypse is going to punish California. Armageddon will descend upon the city of Los Angeles, the city of Sin, the city of Gomorrah, the city of Sodom. And waters will arise and separate this sinful, sinful city from our country. Or also They Live, which John Carpenter called his middle finger to Ronald Reagan. In that movie, John channeled his fears about people being brainwashed into apathy, of people who can't see that their spend, spend, spend freedom is actually fascism. And he turned those fears into these magic sunglasses that revealed the truth about the world along with help from resistance leaders like the scrambled news broadcaster who's trying to break through the lies. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. On a side note, is it a coincidence that Michael's first murder, the one where he kills his sister Judith and Haddonfield loses its innocence, that that murder takes place on Halloween 1963, less than a month before JFK gets assassinated and America loses its innocence? I genuinely do not know, but in the real-world timeline, Jason Blum also wants his horror flicks to connect to important ideas. The Purge is really about gun control. Get Out is about racism. Now, horror movies since Frankenstein, since the beginning of time, have had social messages. So there's nothing new about doing that. But the person who was the best at it was John Carpenter, right? So he looms very, very large at Blumhouse in all of our psyche, right? And everyone who, especially after Get Out, everyone who's pitching us a movie, a social thriller, like John Carpenter, everyone, everyone says it. But 
clearly my entire movie business is more informed by John Carpenter than any other single director. I guess my last question is this. You know, you were talking about how important it is for a Blumhouse horror film to also have that social message on top of it. What would you say that is here? The social message of Halloween is very clearly, it's a female, it's a women, female empowerment movie. It's women outsmarting, outmaneuvering, out physically challenging a deeply fucked up evil guy. I mean, that's what it is to me. Is that a fight women can win? I mean, meaning, can women defeat Michael Myers so completely that he won't come back for the sequel? I'm going to answer your question a different way. I think it'd be very hard to make a Halloween movie without Michael Myers. And now you're staring at me cryptically. Well, I'm not. I have nothing more to say on the topic. I have nothing more to say. Okay, then let's just focus on the now, on these three generations of women banding together. There's a moment in the new Halloween that makes this idea literal, where the camera focuses our attention on women holding hands. There's Lori, there's her daughter Karen, and there's her granddaughter Allison, played by Andy Matichek, who we first met in episode 7. If you've seen Halloween already, you can picture Andy. Hold her face in your head for a minute, and now picture it in black and white. She looks exactly like Jamie Lee's mom, Janet Lee. Jamie actually showed me, I have it on my phone, a picture of her mother when her mother was uh, was Andy's age, and it looks almost identical. It's crazy. How perfect is it that Andy looks like Jamie Lee's mom, the ancestral scream queen in a movie about a family of women forced to face their fears? You see a lot of Laurie in 1978 before everything happened in that innocence in Allison. But you also see kind of an edge that has been created over the years because of the trauma that Lori went through and that and that my mother Karen went through and then kind of drizzle, drizzle down into Allison. Allison loves her grandmother, but she's never seen Michael Myers either. She's only seen her mom be hurt and scarred from growing up in constant fear, and she's willing to call her grandmother out for it. All this hiding, all this preparation, it was for nothing. I mean, it took priority over your family. It cost you your family. If the way I raised your mother means that she hates me, but that she's prepared for the horrors of this world, then I can live with that. Halloween is Andy's first major role in a movie. That's one of the things that Jamie and I connected on as people is that my start was her start. Three generations of actresses. And in the movie, three generations of strode women. Forget that slasher trope of one girl good, other girls bad. To survive in 2018, women have to work together. Three women who are all really different and all have really invaluable qualities and show heroism at its finest. I think that they're all extremely flawed and and make mistakes and and have pain and, and all of that. But they are also strong and brave and intelligent and all these things, which is, I just think the complexity of which is, is what's so brilliant. At this point, I have seen the first Halloween I have no idea how many times. So I loved watching the new movie for all its clever inversions, the scenes where you can see that David and Danny love it too, and they are taking all their favorite beats and turning them inside out. I will just say the words classroom and window for people who have not yet seen it. Technically, David took a lot of the first Halloween's craft ideas and he made them his own. Instead of a long opening tracking shot, David put his tracking shot in the middle, with Michael going in and out of not one, but two houses in Haddonfield on an extended killing spree. 
And instead of faraway shots where the audience has to scan all the corners to look for Michael, David likes to use shallow focus, you know, where the image nearest the screen is sharp and everything behind it is blurry, so that you're freaked out and you're looking for the vaguest shape of Michael in the distance. David also likes creepy shadows, but to get them, he shines lights straight at the camera. Flashlights, car headlights, anything to keep us blinded to what might be moving in the margins. And if you remember us talking about how in the original closet scene, it was so scary and disorienting that the bulb turns on and then off, he does a similar thing here with a motion-detecting lamp. And also, John Carpenter wrote a new riff on the Halloween theme that is super scary, and you're only going to hear it once, so pay attention. It kicks in when Allison sees her first corpse, that moment when, like her grandmother before when she found her dead friends, her life is forever changed. And yes, it does deserve a new and equally nerve-rattling song. But what's different about the new Halloween is that it is also deliberately very funny. There's visual humor, of course, you know, elbows towards things from the sequels that it erased, like kids running around in the masks from Halloween 3. There's this one camera pan in the back of a truck, an image that's on its own also a little Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that had me thinking about Halloween 4. I don't want to spoil that. But most of the jokes in the movie are actually just jokes. The movie trusts that writing in real comedy won't make the terror less terror-y. To hear Danny talk about it, comedy and horror share a lot in common. You're definitely like dealing with setup and payoff and, and all that of like how you can set something up and then pay it off later. And, you know, in this regard, it's, you know, kills instead of uh, dick jokes. But uh, but I think ultimately it's, you know, it's it's servicing a fan experience. It's, it's, it's tuned to watch with the crowd. It's tuned to like watch with other people and to fake people out and to, you know, sucker punch people when you can. But also the best comedies and the best horror films really care about their characters. It's very similar. And I think even in our comedy we just always like to enter anything that we do where it's like, let's just make the character feel real. Like as cartoony as Kenny Powers may feel, ultimately, if you stick with that show and watch it, he seems like he's a real person and he has flaws and things that you can kind of identify that you might have as well. And I think it makes the horror work better in the sense that it like you feel a little bit of investment in these people. It's not just like introducing a character just to like, you know, make them look like an idiot and then see him slaughtered. It's like trying to kind of make it relatable and ground it so it can be that much more horrifying. Do you think the world is a dark and evil place? <laughs> I think it can be, for sure. That's you got to surround yourself with people that make you laugh. Even Michael, at least this Michael, he has a sense of humor. Michael, he plays games, you know. he, he is He's like a cat in a ball of yarn. He's always, he gets into mischief a little bit. I don't think he has agendas, but he does get a little playful, whether that's taking Judith Meyer's headstone and putting it in bed in the original Halloween film or some of the strange art projects that he he seems to construct in a very short period of time. So we wanted to make sure we recognized that, some of the playfulness of his kills. Michael's also a little bit smaller. The last time we saw him, Rob Zombie cast him as being 6 foot 8 and almost 300 pounds. Imagine looking up at somebody that size, like hold your hand up if you want, and then drop it down to screech-sized Nick Castle, who's almost a foot shorter and 130 pounds lighter. The new Michael is in between. He's big, but not crazy impossible big. John Carpenter found his inspiration at an asylum. David Gordon Green found his visiting Death Row at a prison in Oklahoma. Death Row is not full of gargantuan monsters. It's, it's full of guys with glasses studying you. <laughs> it's, it's way creepier. You know, you go through maximum security prison and it's banging on bars and hooting and hollering. But you go to Death Row and it's the real weirdos. And those are the guys that... I find personally way scarier. And I don't care if they're four foot three, what they're in there for and what they're looking through the glass when they're making eye contact with you, it gets under your skin. That's a Michael who isn't supernatural. Because yes, in this movie, we haven't seen him come back to life 10 times. 
He's still a human, a guy with gray hair even. He's still one of us, the worst parts of us, our rage and our apathy to the value of other people's lives. Michael makes us recognize our weaknesses, our inability to outrun our fears, that impulse that makes us want to lock our doors and keep our heads down and do nothing as horrors happen to someone else. David put the Michael mask on himself. Many times. Oh, yeah. A lot. <laughs> it, it, is, it is an interesting feeling. I had to try it on myself and look in the mirror, and you know, it's, it's a little disturbing. It possesses a peculiar power. Even in the film. It's funny seeing the new Halloween after reading endless message boards about the obsession with the mask, and then seeing that the mask holds the same fixation for all the characters in the movie in moments that I do not want to spoil. Including Michael, though he plays it catatonic. I showed him the mask... There was nothing. No response, nothing. I can see why you would hide behind a mask for any number of reasons. Putting a mask on is and be someone else. You can hide, you can disappear, you can embody someone else's ability, you can convince yourself or someone else that you are someone else. It definitely accesses certain childhood emotions, as, as I think this franchise does, the music does, the mask does, Laurie Strode does. On the set, Jamie Lee was struck by how much she was reminded of making Halloween in 1978. David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were old friends making a movie together for not a lot of money, just like John Carpenter and Nick Castle and Tommy Lee Wallace had been 40 years before. You know, Jamie had mentioned that, that she felt like on the set it had like a similar vibe, that it was a bunch of friends and people were trying to have fun and they were weirdos and they were just like making something outside the box and doing it on a, you know, doing it on a shoestring budget and... That aesthetic definitely was present, I think, on our, uh, on our set as well. At the new Halloween's premiere, everybody was there. Like, everyone. Even Weird Al Yankovic, who you might remember has a cameo in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. The movie is dedicated to Mustafa Akkad, but I spotted Erwin Yablin squeezing his way past the bar. There was a lovely woman in this red sequin dress near the dessert table, and when I walked over and said hi, it turned out to be Judith Myers, the 1978 Judith Myers, fully alive and delightful. Jason Blom was there in a thematic bright orange tracksuit with rainbow striped socks, and when Jamie Lee introduced the film, she led Hollywood's Chinese theater in a huge round of applause for Deborah Hill. Only now, Jamie Lee wasn't the newest of the new kids. She was the leader. She was this battle-scarred warrior. And what strikes me is that in 2018, we talk about Jamie Lee Curtis and Laurie Strode almost like they're the same person. They're both strong, they're tough, they're fiercely protective, and they're awe-inspiring. I feel like as a woman, it's it's kind of difficult sometimes to be really confident and outspoken because then you're looked as kind of the B word and, and you have an ego. And then if you also, I feel like Jamie can carry herself. You stay on your toes because she doesn't suffer fools. I don't know if playing Laurie Strode, if becoming a famous teenage scream queen made insecure rich kid Jamie Lee realize her own strength. Or if Jamie Lee's own happy ending of learning she can own her body, survive Hollywood, fall in love, raise happy children, become a grown woman who can stand strong and fight for the things she believes in. If all of that real life just made her understand and love Lori more. If she put all of that life into Lori, along with her regret that Lori didn't get to have any of those things. It's heartbreaking because she had no life. But Jamie Lee gives her life. And we, all of us listening to the show and watching Halloween, we keep Lori Strode alive. We believe in a human being who sees the enemy and steps forward. I remember in rehearsals, I weirdly like got teary-eyed and just like chills because it felt like it was just so iconic seeing these two characters just face each other and walk slowly towards each other. We are all Lori. We are all facing our own Michaels. He's waited for me. 
I've waited for him. So now, with Halloween Unmasked coming to an end, it's our turn to keep her spirit alive. Come on, Michael. Let's fight for a better Haddonfield, wherever you live. And now, the credits roll on Halloween Unmasked. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and I wrote the show. You can find me on Twitter at the Amy Nicholson, and on my other podcast, Unspooled, where I'm going through the AFI Top 100 with the awesome comedian Paul Shear from How Did This Get Made. If you want to hear more on movies from The Ringer, check out TheRinger.com and subscribe to their other podcasts, The Rewatchables, The Big Picture, and The Watch. Check out what my production team is doing over at Neon Hum by going to their Twitter or website, NeonHum.com. And also on that note, thank you, thank you, thank you to my producers Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber, and our production helpers Kai McMullen and Kieran Novatia. Also, a big thanks to Juliet Littman, Sean Fennessy, Bill Simmons, and everyone else at The Ringer who helped in some way. And most of all, thanks so much to you, Creepers, for listening to the show and for recommending it to people and for going on this eight-episode journey that is now ending just in time for me to wish you this. Happy Halloween. <laughs>